the bottom line in business. Voice America Business. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. And my guest this hour is Catherine Burton, uh, who is a reporter at Bloomberg News, uh, who has just done a book about uh, hedge funds called Hedge Hunters, Hedge Fund Masters on the Rewards, the Risk, and the Reckoning. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you so much, Jordan. Let's just talk about your background a little bit first. Uh, tell us about uh, your journalistic background and what led you uh, to write this book. Well, I've been working at Bloomberg since 1993, and uh, I started off covering uh, institutional investing. And then as institutions got began to invest more and more in hedge funds, I started to write about them more, and I became very interested in them. And uh, I've been covering hedge funds since about 1995, and actually exclusively since about 1998, after long-term capital management. So let's just start with the basics for people. Uh, people may have heard of hedge funds, but they're not exactly sure uh, what they are. So why don't we just kind of start with a basic definition of what hedge funds are and what kind of investments they make. Okay. Well, hedge funds are private partnerships. You can't invest in them unless you have at least a million dollars uh, net worth. And they take uh, many different forms. The sort of traditional hedge fund is a fund that invests in stocks, and you can. The, uh, what makes them different than mutual funds is that they not only buy stocks, but they also sell stocks short, which means they're making bets on stocks they expect to fall. And in general, hedge funds can make investments on both falling and rising prices. And they also invest other in bonds and commodities and currencies, really whatever they want to invest in, right? Absolutely. There's many, many different strategies. And, and what makes them different than a traditional investment is because they have a lot more leeway to do what they want. Uh, even if they have a, a certain mandate, uh, they often go outside that and make other investments. And how are hedge funds regulated in general these days? They are not. Uh, they're regulated fairly lightly. I mean, they can't break securities laws, and the SEC will look at look at and make sure that people aren't doing anything wrong. But uh, they're really their only regulation is if they invest in stocks in the U.S., they have to file uh, quarterly to um, to tell them their holdings on the long side only, though. Um, That's only if they have more really than five. Very much regulated. That's only if they have more than 5% of a company's stock or, or anything that they hold? No, anything. As long as they have more than $100 million in assets, they have to report their holdings uh, quarterly. I see. Now, there have been proposals uh, to regulate hedge funds uh, because people were concerned, particularly after long-term capital management, I guess last year at Amherst Advisors, that there's a concern that this is kind of this huge wild card out there that could lead us all to our ruination. Is that something you think... Is necessary and might happen at some point? I don't think it really is. The SEC tried to make hedge funds register, and, and that was a very mild form of regulation. All they had to do was, was fill out a form that said their address and how much money they managed and who the principals were, and that's about it. And that was actually uh, uh, one of, a hedge fund manager sued them, and now uh, hedge funds don't even have to register with the SEC. And I think, for the most part, the SEC um, isn't going to try and regulate them. So do you think that might harder. change? If, if another big one, I mean, with long, maybe describe to people a little bit 
of what happened with long-term capital management, which is kind of the most famous hedge fund blowing up, and, and what the implications uh, were of, of something like that? Um, yes, it was the, the biggest uh, blow-up at the time. At that time, it was the biggest blow-up. And uh, the implications for that were really had more to do with the brokerage industry than with hedge funds, because it was the brokers that were allowing long-term capital management to borrow so much money to make their bets. And after that, in the aftermath that math of that, people have um, the consensus is, is that it's the broker's duty not to lend too much money to hedge funds. And, and so, has, so, has that in fact, fact leverage, leverage has come down a lot since then. I see. So, so this, in the current situation, for example, with uh, mortgage-backed securities uh, blowing up, particularly with subprime, um, hedge funds did not borrow a lot. My, my impression was they had borrowed a lot to, to buy subprime mortgage-backed securities. In certain instances, but, but actually very few, because the banks have um, become more stringent about, uh, about lending an enormous amount of money. And they've also, as soon as there seems to be trouble, I think they're quicker to, to cut their, um, the borrowing from mm-hmm. the funds. Mm-hmm. So they'll, they'll force a fund to liquidate more quickly than they used to. And so has that been happening recently? I, I guess you might tell the story of Amherst uh, Partners last year, and I guess it was the natural gas industry. They, they bet the wrong direction. What happened there? Well, they, they had a very large bet on there that, uh, about the direction of natural gas prices. And the trader there, Brian Hunter, had made an enormous amount of money uh, following uh, Hurricane uh, Katrina. And uh, so they were making more and more money off of this bet ever since, ever since then. And uh, the bet suddenly went against him. They had too much of their portfolio into it. They were getting margin calls from brokers, which means that they were trying to cut down their leverage, and they couldn't meet them because they had sold everything else in the portfolio, basically. So is your sense that there are other hedge funds similarly kind of undiversified, making huge bets, hoping they work out, but they get wiped out if it goes the wrong direction? I am sure that they that, that will not be the last blow-up of that magnitude, but I feel that overall the funds are more conservative in their approach than they have been. And I think partly that's due to the fact that there are more institutions invested um, in hedge funds now. And they really, what they want in a fund is to have pretty good returns that are very steady as opposed to extremely good returns that tend to be more volatile. So I think that means that once your fund gets big, you're not going to take as many risks as you might have if you were just managing money for wealthy individuals, for example. Give us a sense of the magnitude of the hedge fund industry. How much money are they investing now, and what was that five years ago, and what what are the projections for how much they might be controlling? Well, uh, currently, hedge fund. the estimate is that hedge funds manage about $1.8 trillion. Uh, Going back uh, into the early into the 1980s, there was maybe a few hundred billion dollars. And how much they could manage, that's, it seems to be growing by a rate of maybe 15% a year. So they, they are managing more and more dollars and will continue to. I mean, 
U.S. institutions, for example, now only have about, on average, 2% of their assets uh, in hedge funds. And that's definitely going to grow. So from an institution's point of view, why would they want to invest in a hedge fund compared to a traditional uh, money manager who would put it in stocks and bonds? Well, over a market cycle, hedge funds tend to be better investments because, uh, well, take, for example, the Internet bubble. When it crashed, you know, stocks fell by pe- pension funds were losing, you know, 30% a year or more in their, in their stock funds. If you invest in a hedge fund portfolio, on average, you've never really, you've maybe seen one year when there was a loss. And it wasn't even that big, one or two years. You know, and we're talking about a loss of maybe two or three or four percent. And so, on average. And so, uh, it's a way to preserve capital because you can go short and make money when things are falling. Mm-hmm. As well as be diversified outside of stocks into commodities and currencies and other kinds of things as well. Exactly. Yeah. T- tell us about the fees that hedge funds uh, earned because uh, there's certainly a lot more than what mutual funds or other institutional money managers are earning. Exactly. The fees are generally um, 2% of assets under management and 20% of any returns that the fund makes. On a quarterly or annual basis? No, that's on an annual basis. So, so what kind of money can some of these hedge fund managers make if they're successful? They can make a large, large amount of money. There are estimates out there, uh, and they're really only very back of the envelope and estimates because it's it's very hard to get the data, but there are people who who earn a billion dollars a year managing a hedge fund because they have a lot of their own net worth in it. If they have returns of 10 or 15 or 20 percent a year and they're managing $15 billion, all that means that they make a lot of money every year. So the, the institutions who are investing don't seem to mind as long as the profits are there, they're willing to give up 20 percent of it is what it comes down to. Exactly, and even with even after they pay the fees, the returns have still been about ten percent a year for the last since about two thousand. Uh, so that's that's a pretty good return. It's been pretty steady. And so this whole field of hedge funds has been attracting money managers from the traditional mutual fund and other institutional money managers because people can make so much more money. Is, is that right? Is there a brain drain from regular money managers into the hedge funds? There has been, although it's reversed a little bit because it's become harder to, because there's more institutions looking at hedge funds now, uh, they tend to want to invest with the hedge funds that have been around a long time, so it's much harder to raise money now than it was, say, in 2000. I see. Uh, So there's a little less of a brain drain than there used to be. But if someone comes out of a a big shop like Goldman Sachs, and they think that they can raise a half a billion dollars or a billion dollars on day one, then they'll do it. But there's a lot of people coming out and raising a few million dollars, and that's a lot harder proposition. You probably make more money staying in, a, in your Wall Street job. Mm-hmm. So are individuals investing a lot in hedge funds as well? I know you need at least a million dollars, but is this something that's quite popular with individuals? It is, although now this the percent it used to be, uh, in the early days of hedge funds, it, it was almost all wealthy individuals. And now the percentage, there's more institutions involved than there are wealthy individuals. Very good. Okay, well, we're going to come back and actually get into some of the details of some of the hedge funds and some of the hedge fund managers that Catherine uh, profiles in her book. Again, her new book is called Hedge Hunters, 
hedge fund masters on the rewards, the risk, and the reckoning. Uh, Catherine Burton is a reporter at uh, Bloomberg News who covers the hedge fund industry. It's an industry you don't normally hear much about on the inside, and she got access uh, in ways that other people might not have in the past. Uh, so we'll be back with that after this. All right, so we're going to just kind of go through them one at a time, I think, and just kind of give a sense of what they're like. Okay, cool. All right. Is that, was that all right, by the way? Yeah. I just think it was good to get, get the basics of hedge funds across because you know, people might have heard of them and didn't really kind of understand them that well. Yeah, yeah that's great. So, all righty. <coughs> okay, Ruben, we can start the next one. Yep. The bottom line in business, Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Catherine Burton, uh, who is a reporter at Bloomberg News, uh, who covers hedge funds. Uh, she just came out with a new book called Hedge Hunters, Hedge Fund Masters on the Rewards, the Risk, and the Reckoning. Uh, welcome back to the show, Catherine. Thanks so much. Let's uh, get into some of the individual names you have. And before we get into some of these names, just tell us about the kind of access uh, that you got with these hedge fund managers, which really nobody had gotten in the past. H- how did you pull that off? Well, I've been covering the industry for about 10 years, and so people had at least seen the sort of things that I had written over a long period of time, and I think that gave some people comfort. Uh, generally, these guys don't like to talk to the press at all, but uh, I think they saw that I understood the industry and had been writing about it for a long time, so they were willing to uh, take a chance and let me come and interview them. What do they have to get out of it? I mean, they basically, as you say, are very secretive and private. They, they've got all the money they ever could need. What, what do they need publicity for? Well, I think in a lot of instances, they like to do it uh, for recruitment purposes mm-hmm. because they still need they need to hire people, and they like to have at least one bit of information out there that so that people who want to come and work for them can understand a little bit about what they do and how they do what they do. And so I think that's a, a lot of reason. That's a lot of the reason why why some of these guys did agree to sit down and and talk to me. While you're on that subject, just give us a sense of what kind of people are hedge funds hiring these days. Are these all like PhD mathematicians, or what, what kind of people are working for hedge funds these days? Well, the interesting thing that I found in writing the book was that people have very different targets of the kind of people they want to hire. There's some people that hire professionals. Uh, one of the guy, people I t- spoke with, Dan Loeb, who runs Third Point, he had recently hired a female doctor to be an analyst, and now she's a portfolio manager at his firm. Uh, other people uh, hire rocket scientists, physicists, mathematicians. There are uh, other people who will only hire people who went to the best business schools and who have worked on Wall Street before coming to their uh, to the world of hedge funds. And there are other people who don't like to hire MBAs at all, that like, would prefer people who maybe had to work their way through school who and therefore have more practical experience. Hmm. 
Okay. All right, well, let's start with the first uh, one that you uh, profile in the book. His name is Mark Yusko. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, his story. Well, Mark is, uh, I interviewed him because he's what's known as a fund of funds manager, and he invests in a lot of hedge funds. And so I interviewed him as a way to get a, an overview of the industry because he sees many, many managers. He's actually invested with a lot of the managers who I interviewed in the book. And uh, he has a good viewpoint to see sort of the similarities and the differences between managers. And well, how, his, how does he evaluate these different managers since he's seeing them all? Excuse me? How, how does he evaluate managers since he's seeing the, the field? Well, he really has a, a sort of a list of attributes that he looks for in trying to pick out some of the best managers. And uh, when you look at them, they seem pretty obvious, but, but it's very hard to find people who fit all these qualities. And those are things like people who are very smart, they're very ambitious, they have very good connections, um, they're independent thinkers, which means that they're not just going to invest in what everyone else thinks is the hot new thing. In fact, that's probably something that they're going to want to bet against. Mm-hmm. Um, that they are very aware of the fact that they're going to make a lot of mistakes and they're going to do work very hard and do a lot of research, but once they're convinced that they're on the right path, that, they're, that their investment is going to make them money, then they stick to it, even if in the short term you'll see, they'll have, face some market gyrations. And, um, and also people... That are that treat their employees well, which I thought was interesting, because his point is if you uh, if you don't treat your employees well, then one day you're going to have all your analysts walk out on you, and then uh, you'll be in trouble. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how does it work with him? Does he take institutional money and then spread it out amongst different hedge funds? Yes, that's what he does. But then you get one return that's based on uh, typically how, how much would he put in any individual hedge fund? Or he'd have 10 in a portfolio? Or how would he typically do something like that? Uh, he would probably take a portfolio of, I don't know, 10 or so managers and give them, uh, depending on the size of the manager, you would give them anywhere from, I don't know, 2 to $10 million, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, at the end, you'd aggregate all that, uh, and, re- and that's the return that your, your investors get. So he is not managing money himself. He is managing other managers, in effect. Exactly. And what kind of override does he get? He gets, uh, well, generally, fund of funds get one in 1% of assets under management and between 5 and 10% of the profit. Well, wow. so that's on top of the 2 and 20 that the underlying fund managers are getting. Exactly. And, and he'll pull the plug on a manager if he's not performing well pretty quickly? Absolutely. It's his job to do so. If he sees a manager, he also has a few red flags he work, looks for. If someone starts, you know, spending more time decorating their vacation home or buying Ferraris or or competing in polo matches, then he'll pull the money because he knows they're not paying attention anymore to, to managing people's money. You do talk about the red Ferrari syndrome here, and, and you have a story of uh, Mark Yusko talking to Stephen Feinberg, the head of uh, service capital measures. Tell us that story. Yes, he's, he told me that he had uh, a bet because they were talking about the red Ferrari syndrome one day. And so they had a bet that if Feinberg ever bought a new car or moved uh, 
from his house in Greenwich that he he would actually double the amount of money that Mark had made by investing in Cerberus. And Mark said that that uh, that actually Feinberg did buy a new uh, Chevy pickup truck, but he didn't call him on it because the truck had two hundred sixty thousand miles on it. So kind of that a break. Wasn't exactly a red Ferrari, huh? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. All right, so that's kind of a fund-to-fund manager. The next one that you talk about is uh, Michael Steinhardt, who's probably the most famous of the, maybe him and Julian Robinson are probably the most famous of the hedge fund managers. What is Michael Steinhardt's uh, approach? Well, Michael Steinhardt uh, started out as a stock picker, and he was really one of the pioneers of the hedge fund industry. And uh, sort of midway in his career, he started investing in other things as well. He started investing in currencies and bonds and became one of the best-known, what's called a macro manager, which means he's making bets on macroeconomic trends like interest rates and currency moves. I mean, one of the big things about Steinhardt, I guess, is that he would make large bets, right? He would not spread. He would not be diversified. He would believe in what he thought very strong and put huge amounts of money behind it. Is that right? That's true. He tended to borrow a fair amount of money to make his bets, and in fact, he made a lot of money in his career uh, in a big bet on on bonds, and also lost a lot of money on a big bet in bonds um, because those markets are very big, and you can you can put a lot of money to work. So, and, what, um, so, what, so that was sort of doing, how he morphed. What has he been doing lately? Uh, he is now retired from the hedge fund industry, and uh, he's been concentrating on uh, philanthropic efforts. He uh, gives a lot of money to Jewish causes nowadays. He's, a, he's an atheist, but he wants to. Um, he he believes that it's important to um, to support Jewish causes, and uh, he has an organization such as called that's called Birthright Israel in which he sends people who've never been to uh, Israel to Israel. So what can investors learn from uh, reading about Michael Steinhardt and his approach? Uh, I think one of the inter- most interesting things about Michael Steinhardt was that he said that he noticed throughout his career that one of his biggest mistakes was that he would sell too early. As soon as he got as soon as it was proven that he was right he says that he would tend to get out because then it was no, the investment was no longer interesting to him. It was he was more interested in, in the intellectual part and being right than in really how much money he could be he could make if he stayed in it. So he wouldn't let his profits run in effect. N- not as much as he he thought he could have, but at the end of the day, he still made close to thirty percent a year for I don't know twenty years. And so that's a really good return. So, so I tend to think that maybe it wasn't such a bad strategy because as soon as he got out of one investment, he was already putting money into another one, and and you know so he would capture most of the return. So he was never late for things. He was always getting out of things and then getting into something new. Tell us a little bit about the secrecy in the hedge fund business. If they're going to take a major position in a bond or a currency or an individual stock, how do they hide if they're coming in with tens of millions or billions of dollars, how do they hide that they're doing that? Well, they can use several different brokers, which most of them do, uh, so that so no one knows where those are coming from. So they'll do it in pieces, in other words. Uh, oh. So they'll go to Morgan Stanley for part of it, and then they'll go to Merrill Lynch, and they'll go to Goldman Sachs. 
And uh, so that helps them hide it a little bit. Also, there's more things that are done online now, which also makes them uh, anonymous. So are the brokers sworn to secrecy as to where this money is coming from so that the, the word won't get out? Yes, they're supposed to. They're not supposed to talk about other people, what other people are doing, although clearly it happens. <laughs> <laughs> so there aren't, like, hedge fund followers like... Warren Buffett says he's buying a stock and everybody jumps into it. That doesn't happen with hedge funds, you're saying? No, no, it does, but it happens in a slightly different way, which is that um, I spoke earlier about uh, filings that managers who buy stocks that are over $100 million have to do. They're called 13Fs. Mm-hmm. And so every quarter, these funds who, who trade in stocks, as long as they have more than $100 million worth of stocks, have to file these. And there are many people that will look at the quarterly filings of some of the big hedge fund managers to see what they're buying or what they're getting out of. And do you think that's a good strategy for investors to follow, to follow what successful hedge funds are doing with their money? Sometimes it is. It's a little bit difficult because it's only once a quarter, and so you don't know when they're selling. So you could get in, you know, you could look at what they were doing in September and want to buy it. And then they might have gotten out in October, and you're still holding it in December when you only then learn that they've dumped their whole position. Indeed. Okay. Very good. All right. Well, we're going to come back. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is Catherine Burton, who's a reporter at Bloomberg News who covers hedge funds. Uh, her new book, uh, published by Bloomberg, is called Hedge Hunters, Hedge Fund Masters on the Rewards, the Risk, and the Reckoning. And we'll be back after this. giving them a sense of it each. I'm not sure we'll make them through all of them, but we'll, we'll keep trying here. All right, cool. <laughs> okay. We can keep going, Ruben. All right. <clears throat> He's juggling many shows at once. See, they, they have um, seven different networks <laughs> they're doing there. Wow. And just... One engineer? Uh, he's, they have a Phoenix studio and a San Diego one. He's in the San Diego one. So they've got them going in both. But they've got a women's network, a new age network, a sports network. This is the business network. So it's a whole, it's just the largest uh, online radio uh, operation around. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. There's about 60 or so who are just doing the business, business one. All righty, we're ready to roll. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is Catherine Burton, uh, who is a reporter who covers hedge funds at uh, Bloomberg News. Uh, her newest book is called Hedge Hunters, Hedge Fund Masters on the Rewards, the Risk, and the Reckoning. Welcome back to the show, Catherine. Thanks so much. Okay, we've uh, talked about hedge funds in general. We've talked about two of the big ones, and now our next one is John Armitage. Uh, tell us a little bit about his uh, strategies. Well, John Armitage is interesting because he came from the world of mutual funds. He's uh, the only foreign manager in the book. He uh, works out of his office in London, and he manages his fund uh, much like a mutual fund in that he doesn't use any leverage whatsoever. That means he doesn't borrow any money when he's making his bets, and he's 
very conservative. What makes him different than a mutual fund is that he does short stocks as well as uh, go long, although mostly his portfolio is uh, primarily stocks he thinks will go up. What's the name of his fund? His fund is called Egerton. And based in London. And what yeah. kind of performance has he had? Uh, he's had very, very good performance, uh, something like 26% um, since he started, which was back in 1994. So he has a very, very long-term track record. And what is his style? What does he pick stocks based on value or growth or momentum? What is he looking for? Now, he is a value manager. Uh, a lot, Most of the guys in the book who are stock guys uh, tend to be value guys, which means they're looking for stocks that they think are cheap relative to their potential earnings. Uh, I didn't really come across very many momentum guys or, or growth guys. So you, you think of value as being a longer-term, uh, you know, kind of a slow way of making money as opposed to kind of fast enough. And the common perception of hedge funds would be the opposite, that they're extremely fast-triggered in-and-out traders. It's, it's kind of a, a different view of them than most people would probably have. That's true. The, the, it's true that their reputation is as someone who's going to be trading every five minutes or hour or every few days. But uh, there are a whole group of managers that really tend to be longer-term focused, and, and John Armitage is one of those managers. He'll own stocks for two or three years, and that's sort of his outlook for uh, when he's picking a stock. He'll, he'll look for something that's going to double over, over that time period. He's not interested in something that he's going to have to sell next week. Looks like he does a lot of international investing as well, is that right? That's correct. Most of his, he, uh, most of his investments are European stocks or, or uh, South American stocks as well. He does some. Mm-hmm. Okay, the next uh, one in your book is called uh, Mark Lassery, uh, and your subtitle for him is An Intolerance for Losing. Tell me a little bit about Mark. Well, Mark is, I, I was very interested in talking to Mark. Uh, he runs a firm called Avenue Capital. And I was interested in speaking to him because, to me, he sort of represents the institutionalization of uh, hedge funds. He runs a firm um, that has been growing extremely quickly. He now has about $15 billion in assets, and uh, he had $1 billion of assets in 2001. So that's a huge growth. And he's, that growth has come a lot from institutional investors, and he doesn't have the best performance of people doing what he does, which is uh, investing in distressed uh, debt. But they like him because he has very steady returns, and returns that are better than than uh, than stocks. Like what kind and of returns? Is, what kind Twelve of returns or thirteen percent a year. He's averaged, mm-hmm. and that's better. That's a few percentage point better than what the S and P has done. But it's been a much much steadier, much less volatile. And how has he navigated uh, the recent credit crunch and everything that's happened with distressed debt? Um, during these times, he's he's been very conservative, and he's invested in the most senior paper of companies. Um, he wouldn't do any, you know, some prime investments. Uh, so there are definitely ways that, that you can invest in debt without getting involved in, in some of the things that have lost a lot of money. What makes him different from the other managers who are investing in distressed debt? Um, in in what way do you mean? Sorry. Well, I mean, others are taking more risks in the way they're doing it, or I mean, other people, for example, will buy credit card portfolios 
that have already defaulted and they'll buy them at two cents of the dollar and hope to squeeze 10 cents out of people or whatever it may be. Everybody has different strategies. What are his strategies? Is, is, is he trying to get into these companies, buy a lot of their debt, and then change their management? Or what is, how does he do it? Uh, no, he, de- he generally doesn't sit on, on management committees, um, although I think he has in the past. But generally it's, it's just that he, he invests in – he won't invest in junior paper as often as other managers might. For example, there's a manager, David Tepper, who runs a fund called Appaloosa, and he's had years when he's had 50% returns because he's really bought paper that was selling it extremely cheaply. And Mark wouldn't do that. Mark says, I really concentrate on how much money that I can lose. So uh-huh. that means he's going to be buying paper that's 80 cents, and he expects it to go to a dollar or 85 cents. He's not going to be trading paper that's at 30 cents on the dollar. It's just not what he does. What's interesting so far is that these fund managers, even though they're making huge returns, are relatively risk-averse in their own ways, it sounds. Yes, that's true, and that's something that I, I found pretty interesting in talking to all these guys. But their approach is, by and large, that the most important thing is to stay in business. <laughs> and many of the guys in the book have been in business for going on 20 years, and that's how they've done it. They're never going to risk so much that they could, they, they could lose everything. Uh-huh. And they're cognizant that that can happen, which is where sort of humility comes in. In general, these were a humble bunch? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's interesting because once they're, they do research and they keep checking the facts to make sure they're, they're not wrong, and then they can have an amazing amount of conviction, which is also what makes them great. But they always are aware that they could be wrong, that data could change, that they're overlooking something. Uh-huh. And so instead of looking for information that bolsters their argument, they actually look for information that uh, that goes against it. They always want to see really what the potential downside could be. <laughs> yes. Okay, the, your next uh, person that you're talking about is Craig Efron. Um, tell me about, about his hedge fund. Uh, Craig is a, uh, was a Mark Lazary's, Pick. What I did was, with all the, man- the well-established managers, I asked them to name someone who is lesser known or maybe just starting out who they respect. And um, in most cases, these were guys who, who the, they gave their own money to, to manage. And so Craig was someone that Mark Lazary uh, had picked as being a good money manager. Now, Greg, Craig's been around for a pretty long time, but he's kept his fund relatively small. But he, he doesn't take new investments really anymore because he felt like it hurt performance if he got too large. So he only has about $3 billion under management, but he's been around since uh, 1988. And Craig is interesting because he came from the world of commodities trading, so he was in the pits, you know, trading oil and, and uh, gold and silver. But he's not doing that in his hedge fund now. No, he's not doing that, but, but the things he learned in the pits is really he's brought to how he manages, um, how he manages por- his portfolio today, which is really stocks and bonds of companies going through uh, corporate events like spinoffs, like mergers, like uh, coming out of bankruptcy. You said his approach is uh, responding to change. What, what do you mean by that? Um, he looks for companies that are going through corporate changes. So either they're spinning off units, they're coming out of bankruptcy, they're going through mergers. Um, and so he'll buy the stocks and bonds of companies that are, are doing that. 
but the thing that was interesting about him was that he, because he started out as a commodities trader, he knew that he's very quick to cut his losses, probably the quickest person in the book to, to cut their losses when, when the price moves against him. Even if he thinks in the long term he's right, he'll get out because he saw commodities traders in his youth who were kept saying, oh, the, the oil's going to go down, oil's going to go down, oil's going to go down, and it kept going up, and they were wiped out. Yeah. Yeah. What was it? Um, ben Graham used to say something about uh, you could be right or you could lose a lot of money or something like that, right? <laughs> you, you can be right until you run out of money or something like that, yes. Okay, the next one you talk about is Lee Ainsley. Uh, tell us about his style. Well, Lee Ainsley is a stock picker. He's uh, His first job was with uh, Julian Robertson, who is a very famous stock picker who's also interviewed in the book. And uh, he's sort of a, a pure hedge fund in that he only invests in stocks, and he it's, he uh, invests in stocks at half in stocks he expects to go up, and and the other half of his portfolio in stocks he expects to to fall, and that's all he does. He doesn't really use a lot of leverage either. Um, he is also a value investor, and he manages about ten billion dollars now. And what kind of return does he have? He uh, also has he has returned to about uh, 16 or 17 percent a year since he started uh, in uh, March of 1995. So those are pretty strong returns, much more than the uh, S&P 500, for example. Yes, for sure. Okay, very good. Well, we're going to go through some more of the uh, hedge fund managers that Catherine is profiling. Uh, again, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show, and my guest this hour is Catherine Burton. Uh, who covers hedge funds at uh, Bloomberg News. And her latest book, uh, published by Bloomberg Press, is called Hedge Hunters, Hedge Fund Masters on the Rewards, the Risk, and the Reckoning. And we'll be back after this. They're completely gotten out of what they had. Excuse me? We can't talk about what they've been buying or selling lately because it could have changed completely from when you did the book, right? Yeah, exactly. I tried to do sort of more historical and lessons they learned than anything that they were doing at the moment. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. This is our last segment. It's going to be about 15 minutes or so. So, okay. Ruben, we're ready when you are. Ten minutes. Okay. The bottom line in business. Voice America Business. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host, and my guest this hour is uh, Catherine Burton, who is a reporter at Bloomberg News. She's done a book about hedge funds called Hedge Hunters, Hedge Fund Masters on the Rewards, the Risk, and the Reckoning, published by Bloomberg Press. Welcome back, Catherine. Thank you so much. We're going to try to go through these as quickly as we can the time we have left. Uh, Bernard ba- Brene Box, let's t- talk about uh, how he does his hedge fund. All right. Uh, Brene was the choice of Lee Ainsley. Uh, Brene has also been around for a relatively long time. Uh, he started his fund in 1999, and he... Uh, his specialty is small cap stocks, which is very interesting because 
key, these stocks he invests in or shorts are companies that don't really have any Wall Street coverage at all or very little, and so he has to do a lot of the primary research uh, to find good companies. Uh, some of his picks have been things like uh, the maker of Ugg Boots and uh, Monster Energy Drinks. And, you know, he found these companies before anyone even knew what they were. So he has a whole bunch of analysts out there looking for different things. He has about, uh, I think, four or five analysts. And they really just get their their ideas uh, from talking to small companies. They'll talk to one company, and they'll, you know, one of their vendors, they'll say, oh, we're, you know, our other vendor is doing well, and so they'll go to that company. So it, it's just sort of following the breadcrumbs, as they call it, just by talking to various companies and see who's doing well in different industries and, and then going to talk to the, that management. It is interesting. Every, every one of these hedge fund managers has their own uh, style here. Uh, the next one is Boone Pickens, uh, who's a very famous uh, oil man. Tell us about his uh, experiences as a hedge fund manager. Um, well, Boone has been an uh, oil man, as you said. He's been a corporate raider. And then a few years ago, he started his uh, energy hedge fund. And he says that he's made more money being a hedge fund manager um, than he has in any of his other pursuits. And I think it's just because he knows so much about the oil industry. And the timing was good, too. Right, I mean, with oil rising as sharply as it has been, his timing has been good as well. Exactly. So what is his basic view, that oil is going up dramatically more from here? Um, Over time, yes. Maybe maybe it will fluctuate in the short term, but Boone believes in the peak oil theory, which is basically that um, the supply of oil is running out, and so over time it will be more expensive. So he's buying a, a wide range of oil companies, or larger ones, bigger ones, smaller ones? What kind of companies does he tend to buy? Well, he has two funds. One is a commodity fund in which he just trades oil futures and natural gas futures, and then he has a fund in which he buys um, oil companies. But really most of his money comes from the commodity fund, where he's actually buying the, the oil and natural gas. Uh-huh. Okay, the next one you have is a, a foursome, uh, Brian Bradshaw, David Meany, Michael Ross and Alex Schwezek. Um, how? What is their technique? Well, they are the the young men who work with Boone Pickens, and they are um, probably the people who are going to take over when Boone retires, which I don't think is going to be anytime soon. But uh, they're Boone's team, and the, his fund, Boone's fund, is is very interesting because he has a much more of a team approach, I think, than anyone else. He really trusts these guys, none of whom, all of whom are in their early 30s, to do the research, and they discuss all the ideas, and it's not, Boone won't won't make a unilateral decision, even though it's his name on the door, which is pretty interesting, because it's not the way a lot of other funds work. Mostly the top guy has to sign off on making an investment before they do it, you mean? Absolutely. Yes. Okay, the next one you have is Josh Friedman and Mitch Julis, who are the doyens of debt. How, how are they doing their hedge fund? Uh, they have what's known as a multi-strategy fund, which is, um, which is called Canyon Partners. It's based in Los Angeles, which makes them a little bit different since most funds are in uh, New York or Greenwich. And uh, they, uh, although they, they invest in stocks and bonds and uh, do private deals, their, their expertise is in uh, debt because they both worked for Michael Milken. Mm-hmm. And they also 
tend to be a fund that is pretty conservative in their approach. They almost never use leverage, and yet they've managed to have returns of, you know, 13 or 14% a year. So uh, they're buying junk bonds, or what kind of debt are they buying? They also, like Mark Lazary, they also tend to buy, um, they can be pretty conservative at times. Like I spoke to them early this year uh, when uh, when people were sort of expecting that the, there was going to be a credit problem, although it hadn't happened yet. And so they, too, were buying uh, the senior paper of corporations. They also do some interesting deals. They'll provide short-term financing for um, private equity firms if they're going about to make a purchase. Um, so they do a lot of creative sort of deal making um, with with uh, they have a very large network of, of private equity firms and investment banks that they work with. Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay, and the next one you have is um, uh, Jeffrey Schachter and Burton Weinstein. Tell us a little bit about them. Uh, well, they're one of the newer managers in the book in that they started their fund in 2004. And uh, so they've just they've just passed their three-year mark. Um, they were really interesting because they were one of the newer managers, and uh, um, they told a very funny story about how when they were detri- deciding whether they were going to start their fund, um, they actually ended up being uh, influenced by a meeting that um, Jeff had with LL Cool J, who he met on a plane had no idea who he was, and it turned out that LL Cool J was, uh, has quite the head for finance and was talking about bonds and Ben Graham, and uh, and they ended up having dinner with him, and they thought, well, you know, if we can get LL Cool J to go out to dinner with us, we can raise money for a hedge fund, and they did. And so did, he, did LL Cool J invest in their fund? Uh, no, I don't think he did, actually. <laughs> okay. All righty. And then you have uh, Dwight Anderson. Tell us briefly about him. He's a commodities trader that was also trained by uh, Julian Robertson, and uh, he's what's been remarkable about him is that last year he had a basically a 20% loss in the beginning of the year, and by the end of the year he was uh, flat, which is almost unheard of in the industry. A lot of times, if you have a loss that's big, you can never recover from it. Now, if you're flat for the year, you still don't make your 20% because there's been no profits, right? That's true. But um, but it's it's pretty remarkable that someone could come back um, from such a loss because basically you can't charge your investors until you make up the difference between the from the peak to the trough. You can't charge your performance fee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So basically, he's a commodities trader. So in general, commodities doing well. That that's been been helpful for him lately. That has been. Although you know they 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 can be very very volatile markets, and so you can get. You can get stuck the way it happened in Amaranth, for example. Even though the overall trend has been up, there's, they're not, they don't go up in a straight line. And then you have Roberto Mignone. Tell us a little bit about him. Um, he's a stock picker who was trained by a guy who came from Julian Robertson's shop. Um, he has a very small, a small-ish fund. It's about $2 billion. He closed it a few years ago because he didn't want to get too big. And he very much believes in primary research. So he'll go out, um, you know, he'll get in the car and drive someplace. He told a story of, of uh, investing in a company that irradiated meat to make it safer. And they would actually go to the supermarket and see how they were promoting it, and they found out that although the company said sales were big, were huge, the reason that sales were huge was because they were discounting them in the stores with coupons. 
mm-hmm. so that they knew that the sales weren't they weren't making sales that uh, that they were reporting to Wall Street. But most most Wall Street firms didn't go out and check the data. And then we're not going to have time to get through it, but I did want to get to Jim Chanos, who's the f- most famous uh, short seller out there. Uh, tell us about his technique. His technique, he's really one of the, he is the, Jim Chanos um, is, is the biggest short seller out there. Uh, he was the guy who first uh, talked about problems at Enron before most investors did. And uh, he looks for uh, companies, he, he looks at fads, he looks at, for accounting frauds, he looks for booms that go bust. He looks for uh, technologies that are becoming obsolete. And those are sort of the arenas he looks at when he's looking for companies uh, to short. And what kind of re- uh, returns has he earned? Well, it's a little bit ha- difficult to talk about returns with him because a lot of because in a bull market he's not going to make money. But mm-hmm. he's been very good at uh, – he sort of looks at, at the returns of the S&P. In, in years when it's up a lot, he ha- he's lost less money than the, than the S&P is up, if you see what I mean. Yes. <laughs> so, good, good so, and that's sure. how he gets paid, and that's how he's able to stay in business. I see. Very good. All right. Well, it's just been a fascinating view. There are some other hedge fund managers we didn't get to, but that gives you a, a brief uh, uh, kind of tour of what's in the hedge fund world. It's been, been quite fascinating, Catherine. Again, I've been with uh, Catherine Burton. Uh, who uh, covers hedge funds for uh, Bloomberg. Uh, her new book is called Hedge Hunters, Hedge Fund Masters on the Rewards, the Risk, and the Reckoning, uh, published again by Bloomberg Press. So thanks, Catherine. Uh, any last words to people about uh, investing in hedge funds? Uh, if you can afford it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right, we really appreciate you being on the show, and uh, thanks again. All right, thanks so much. Bye-bye. And we'll be back next week. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.